This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Good morning. Halfway between Christmas and New Year's. How fun is that? It's the last Sunday of 2008. And uh, I can't think of a more important subject to talk about than this one. And so I want to invite you over the next few minutes, take, the, take your program on the inside of your program. You'll find a half sheet of fill-in-the-blank notes. I want to invite you along on a journey. And uh, for those of you who are in town, uh, are out-of-town guests here for the Christmas season, uh, I'm going to tell you what I tell our people every Sunday. You know, God doesn't have you here by accident. Even if you're only here for one Sunday, God has an agenda, something he wants to accomplish in your life. And wherever you are on your spiritual journey, either toward God or with God, it's my prayer, it's our prayer as a church that you will take that next step and take it this morning. It's my goal, it's our goal as a church to get you connected with God, and I pray that you're already there, that you're already connected, and I pray that in the message of the morning that uh, there's an even deeper connection that you might have with God. Because really what I'm going to talk to you about this morning, it's the heart and soul of Christianity. We're in, this is the last in a sermon series called Christmas Along the Way. The major players in the Christmas story, we began with Joseph, and then Mary, and then the Magi, and then the shepherds, and now today Jesus. The major players in the Christmas story, with the exception of Jesus, all the other major players in the Christmas story were just ordinary people going about the business of life. Joseph was just a young carpenter who was probably starting his own carpentry business with, with great intent and purpose because he was engaged to be married and he was building that business so it would support him and it would support Mary and any children that God would bless them with eventually. He was just a young carpenter when he got invited to become a player in the Christmas story. And Mary was just a young bride-to-be, busy planning her coming wedding and thinking about all that all the new changes that life would bring when... The angel interrupts her and says, God has a special invitation for you. And so along the way, she found great purpose in life. And the Magi were just Zoroastrian priests in a faraway country looking up into the heavens. And they saw an amazing star. And in that setting, God gave them an invitation to become a player in the Christmas story. And the shepherds were just... Hey, guys out on the hill with the sheep. Just one more stinking night with the sheep. And God said, how would you like an invitation to the greatest story of all? And they got it. Not so true with Jesus, however. The key and central player in the entire Christmas story, it wasn't just business as usual for Jesus. In fact, Christmas was a very, very deliberate choice that he made. I want to point you to a passage in the Bible, Galatians chapter 4. 
This is what it says in verse 4. It says, When the right time came, God sent His Son who was born of a woman. When the right time came. It wasn't a surprise to Jesus. This was a choice that He was making. And I think it's important for you and for me to understand the first principle I want to teach you this morning, and that is Christmas begins not on earth, it begins in heaven. It began with a decision that God made, and it was not an easy decision for Him to leave heaven and come to this earth. It was not an easy decision for Him to come and walk where we walk because He knew the death that He would die to pay the penalty for your sins and mine. For those of you who have been working your way through the 21 days of prayer, which is our journey through the book of John, then you understand that between Christmas Day and this morning, the end of our 21-day journey of prayer, we read through the story of the crucifixion of Jesus. And, And what a terrible, terrible thing that was. This was not an easy decision for Jesus. So this didn't take him by surprise. He volunteered. I want to point you to another passage because in it, Jesus talks about what he came to do. Luke chapter 19, the Son of Man came to find lost people and save them. If you were to interview Jesus as he was walking and teaching and working with people and healing and all that stuff, say, hey, Jesus, why did you come here? He would say, I came here for one reason and one reason only, and that is people. And that's why the title of this message, Christmas Along the Way, Finding People Along the Way. That's what Jesus did. And for you and for me, if you extract that out of the Christmas story, the rest of it would be meaningless. For the heart of the Christmas story, I know you've all seen the bumper stickers, He is the reason for the season, and I definitely agree with that. But if you look at Christmas from heaven's standpoint, We are the reason for the season because Jesus came to seek us and to find us and to do something about the condition that he found us in. And the principle from that is simply this. The Christmas story really is about Jesus' mission to find and save a lost humanity. Now, if you were here on Christmas Eve, I gave you two words, and I want you to write them down in the in the margin of your notes this morning. And, th- and those are these two words, full circle. You see, Christmas starts in heaven. And as we'll see at the very end, Christmas also ends up in heaven. It's the story of bringing man full circle all the way around. And if the story stopped anywhere in the middle, wouldn't have a happy ending. So how does this full circle thing work? How does this seeking and finding the lost thing work? Well, there's a passage in the Bible I want to direct our attention to today because it's like the whole Bible in a nutshell. It is the central, uh, it contains the central concept. It's found in Ephesians chapter 2. It starts out by saying, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. I want you to underline this particular part of it. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. 
Because that's where we're going to start in just a minute. Now let me read it on, read on for you. The, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Now, this is the next part I want you to underline. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. Because that's where we're going to go next. With Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, for it is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now underline this part. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. Expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That's the whole Bible right there. Everything else is color and texture and history of how that took place and the working out of what that means in people's lives who choose to align themselves with that message. So there are three things that I want to teach you this morning. And let's go take number one. And that is the Christmas story happens because man is in a mess. Now all I would have to do is just say pick up the newspaper and read. And you can figure it out. That pretty much everything we touch, we tend to make a mess of it in spite of our good intentions and desires to do well. There are four specific words in this passage that God uses that all point toward that messy condition that we all find ourselves in. And the first one is the word dead. He says, you were dead. Now what does dead mean? Well, among other things, it means incapable of experiencing the privileges of the living. People who are dead don't laugh. They don't cry. They don't eat. They don't hug one another. They they don't exchange emotions and, 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 and share the journey of life because those who are dead are incapable of, of sharing in the experiences and the wonderful privileges of the living. You see, what happens is when sin comes into our life, it renders us the living dead. And things that God designed for us to be able to experience, we find ourselves incapable of experiencing. For instance, you and I, as we presently are, are incapable of experiencing eternity. It's outside of our grasp. We're incapable of experiencing the very presence of God in heaven. It's outside of our grasp. We we don't have that capability because we are, even though our hearts are still beating, and even though we move from place to place, as God rightfully says, you are more dead than you are actually alive. Now, we don't feel dead because it's the only life we've ever known. But one day, when God gives us fullness of life in eternity, we will look back at these days and realize just how dead we were. How way short of what God intended for us 
we were actually capable of experiencing. And so Paul says, I want you to know something. In your sinful condition, you are the walking dead. The second word he uses is the word disobedient. Now, for those of you who have had the wonderful privilege of having kids, you need no explanation of what that means, right? But he doesn't just say kids. He said you were disobedient. Now, what that means is disobedient doesn't describe just actions. It describes a perspective or an attitude about life. It means that we are uncooperative and adversarial by nature. Once again, those of you who have raised children understand what uncooperative is. You never had to teach your kids that. came hardwired in. They know all about that. It's what makes marriage a work in progress. Because when you take any two people and you put them together for a lifetime, you soon discover what uncooperative means. This is not a good time to punch your husband or wife, but you all know it's true. Exactly. It's in our nature to be uncooperative. It's in our nature to be adversarial. Just look at two two two-year-olds in the same room. And you understand what adversarial means. It's not long till they're hitting each other. And, And you never had to teach your kids how to bite another kid, right? They figure that out. Watch this. And they become, it is in our nature. It's why all of us have in our neighborhoods that neighbor. You know what I'm talking about? It's just in our nature to be adversarial. He uses a, a, third, a third word, and that is this, the word sinful. And the word sinful means any sort of action or attitude that disrupts or destroys life. Now in His grace, God went through life and put labels on things so that we would know or at least have His instruction to stay away from those things. But the problem is we have a sinful nature. And in fact, in that passage, Paul talks about the cravings of our sinful nature. And the real problem that all of us have is not just that we do sinful things, we have a sinful nature that craves doing sinful things. That's why every person in this room on multiple occasions has had to look in his or her life and deal with what we call a bad habit. That's just the craving of our fallen nature. And then the last word he uses is the word wrath. And I know this is not a politically correct term for me to use today. And the last thing you wanted to hear when you came to church is, "Uh uh-oh, man, you are ready for God's wrath. But I want you to think with me for just a minute. Okay? God created the heavens and the earth as a beautiful place for the, for the star of his creation. And the star of his creation was mankind. And God said, let us make man in our image. So he created them, male and female, in his own image. And God put within us a, a piece of his divine nature. And we decided that wasn't good enough. 
we decided we wanted more. And so we invited sin into our world. And what happened is sin came into our world and began to destroy and disrupt life. Many of us right in this room grew up in homes where there was verbal, physical, and even sexual abuse. And we came into our adult life broken. Lots of baggage. Many of us in this room have gone through the nightmare of a divorce. Broken marriage. I'm not, I'm not here to make any of us feel bad about any of that. It all reflects less than what God had originally intended, but it just reflects what sin does to our world. And God says in His love and mercy, I'm not going to allow that to go on for eternity. I will call an end to this. And just like you do every once in a while, when you can't stand your garage anymore, or maybe I should say you can't stand in your garage anymore, You decide, I'm cleaning house. And you go through and you start pitching everything that has rendered your garage useless. And God has said, one day I'm going to clean house. And everything tainted by sin that so disrupts and destroys life, it's gone. And I will purify the world for eternity. Now there's good news and bad news in that. The good news is, man, if we could just make it there, wouldn't that be great? The bad news is we are all tainted by sin and that's a big problem. That's a big, big problem. And Paul says, that's why he says, like the rest, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. Not that he hates us, but boy does he hate the sinful nature of that's in us, that destroys our life. So there you go. That's the first part of the message of the Bible. So that means you and I have on us a destiny that's stamped, and that destiny that's stamped on us is eternally banned from God's presence because of sin. We're on the outside looking in. So what's the next phrase I had you underline? It begins with the word but. And in this case, that's a great word because it means something is going to change. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy and grace, made us alive. Wow. So point number two is this. The Christmas story takes place only because of God's goodness. Only. In fact, there are a number of theologians, and I would tend to be one of them, that would say, if you want the foundational teaching that all of the rest of Scripture is based on, even the fact that Jesus came in the Christmas story, if you want the most basic and foundational teaching in all of Scripture, it is this. God is good. And if you take that away, everything else crumbles. And this passage says God is good. 
And then there are four words that Paul gives that, that testify to the goodness of God. And the first is the word love. And, and the definition of love in this particular case is desiring and working for the highest good of another. Now, friends, that's not how you and I normally interpret love. We interpret love by how something makes or someone makes us feel. You know, I love cinnamon rolls. Does that mean that I have devoted myself to the highest good of every cinnamon roll I can find? Hardly. I'm on a seek and eat mission when it comes to cinnamon rolls. Because I like how they taste to me. Even when we get ready to get married and we say to someone, what is it you love about that other person? You know, as a pastor, I sit with couples that are going to get married all the time. And I ask them, what is it that, that, that makes you know that you love this person? And they will say, it's their eyes or their smile or it's their wonderful attitude. And I don't want to kill all the romantics in the room or all the romanticism in the room. But the bottom line is we all tend to define love by how something or someone makes us feel. But there's a deeper and a higher and a much more noble sense of love. And once in a while, we actually tie into it, and we live by it. And that is when we decide, no matter how someone or something makes us feel, that we will devote ourselves to that person's highest good. Now when the Bible says, for God so loved the world, he was not talking about a romantic love. God did not look at this world as messed up as we are and say, oh, but I just love them so I can't live without them. God had done pretty well for eternity without us, don't you think? And he could very easily do well in the rest of eternity without us. But God looked at us and he saw what a mess we were in and he realized what he could do for us. So that's the first word, love. The second word is the word mercy. And and for the sake of what I'm going to teach you this morning, mercy is about you and me not receiving the bad that we deserve. What's the label on us? Eternally banned from God's presence because of sin. And God looked down and saw that stamped on every single human being because all of us have sinned and all of us have a sinful nature and all of us live uncooperatively with others and all of us have this adversarial thing that we slip into from time to time. And God says, I want to do something so that they don't actually get what they deserve. Whenever I read the word mercy in Scripture, I'm always reminded of the mother who came in and fell down in the presence of Napoleon, pleading for the life of her son, who had done something in the army, in Napoleon's army, worthy of death. And she came in and she begged, 
mercy for her son. And Napoleon looked at her and said, but ma'am, your son does not deserve it. And she said, sir, if he deserved it, he wouldn't be a mercy. It's pretty easy for us to compare ourselves with people around us and think we deserve a lot of things we really don't because we're better than the average or better than some other Christian or better than other people, all the while forgetting that it's our own sinful nature that causes us struggle in life. And so God says in His mercy, I want to do something that will save every human being from the destination they have earned. But then there's another word, and that's the word grace that he talks about later. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved. How is grace different from mercy? Well, mercy is not receiving the bad I deserve, and grace is receiving something good that I didn't deserve. Yeah. You know, God didn't just reach down and save us and let us sneak in the back door of heaven and think, oh, thank you, I finally made it. What's my job up here? God, who is rich in mercy and by His grace reaches down, and as Paul says later, He has seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. Does that sound like we got in the back door? No. God has saved us from, a, from an eternity of destruction And he's put us in a place of honor. He didn't just bring us up to ground zero. He took us way above that and put us in a place of honor. That's why the fourth word is the word rich. You know what rich means? It means it exceeds what is needed. So how much mercy does God have? Well, already this morning you were told that no matter what you've done in life, that God has a desire to connect with you and forgive you. God doesn't just have a little bit of mercy. God doesn't have just enough mercy that He can somehow get us all in, but just barely. God who is rich in mercy, and God who is rich in grace, and God who is rich in love, So Paul would write to a group of people and say where sin was piling up and increasing, God's grace was even greater than that. You take all the sin in the world, pile it all up in one place. All the people who have been persecuted and killed for their faith. People who have been, friends, the things that we can do to each other are incredible. I was visiting with a guy from the congregation who came back from Iraq. And he said, Pastor, I need to talk to you about something. So what gets in people that causes them to do unspeakable things? He said, what would possibly get in someone who would become so depraved that they want to get in and blow up a hospital 
and they can't get in. So they run across the street and they snatch a baby out of its mother's arms and go dip it in boiling water so they can get in the hospital. Friends, that's just one act in human history. If I hadn't told you about it, it didn't even make the newspaper. Now you take every little child who cowers in the corner because his mom or his dad is going to persecute him, is going to abuse him. And every child that's ever been locked in a closet and every prisoner who's ever been tortured and every woman who's ever been raped. And I don't need to go on, do I? You understand what I'm talking about? You take all the sin of all humanity for thousands of years and pile it up in one place. Is that ugly? That's beyond ugly. And the grace of God is greater. But God, who is rich in mercy and rich in grace and rich in love, made us alive. So what does all that mean? Well, point number three is this. The Christmas story ends in heaven. You see, Jesus came to bring us full circle. We started out with the riches of heaven on earth. That's what we had. Adam and Eve living in the garden without sin, without shame, without ever the fear of death, created to live eternally right here, created to enjoy the physical presence of God, created to enjoy all the beauties and wonders of eternity. They were fully alive. And then they became the living dead. With the sentence of death just waiting to die. And they did. And all of us who are their descendants are born with the sentence of death. And we all know that. And God said, I'm going to do something about that too. So that man will no longer just live in this place where there's death and decay and disharmony and disorder and all those other things that cause us to struggle. And God says, I'm going to bring man full circle. And so the Bible says, so that in the coming ages... In the coming ages, he might show the incom- his incomparable riches of his grace. How? Through us. Let me give you three words. First word is this. Raised. In some ways, I think this is one of God's favorite words. For he raised Jesus to life after he had been killed. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Those of us who have chosen to become Christians, the day that we were baptized, we were buried with Christ through baptism into death so that just like Christ, we would be what? Raised to walk in a newness of life. And God has promised that all of those who die will be raised again. And God has promised that those who die and are in Christ will be raised to eternal life. In some ways, I think that's one of God's favorite words. You know what it means? It means lifted to a higher level. 
Remember way back at the beginning I said to you, no matter where you are on your journey either to God or with God, I prayed that you would take that next step. Because God has you at church this morning so he might raise you to whatever that next level is in your walk. It is one of his favorite words. The next word is the word heavenly. You and I wrote down there, that's the highest level possible. God didn't just raise us a little bit. He raised us with Christ and he placed us in the heavenly realms. You're at the top. That's the wonderful grace of God. Not just a little raise, but He raised us all the way up to the heavenly realms and seated us with Christ. I don't have time to tell you the whole story, but when you and I are welcomed into heaven, there's a little thing that takes place. I shouldn't say a little thing. It's a big thing. It'll be the biggest celebration that you and I will have ever been a part of to date. It's called the marriage Supper of the Lamb. And I don't have time to get into all the theology of it, but I can tell you this, that at the marriage supper of the Lamb, Jesus Christ himself puts the towel over his arm. And the Bible says we are seated and he serves us. Would you say that's pretty high? It doesn't get any higher than that. God who is rich in love and mercy and grace to the highest level. And the last word I want to give you is the word show. God has an eternal purpose for us because throughout eternity when any of the angelic beings ever says, how good is God? God simply points to us and says, there's exhibit A. How good am I? Here's where these people were before I got a hold of them. And here's where they are today. So that in, in us, He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed to us in Christ Jesus. You know, in eternity, we're not the star. We're the demonstration, but we're not the star. The star is Jesus. He's the King of heaven. He's the Lord of lords. He is our Redeemer. He's our Savior. We owe it all to Him. And in heaven, He is the Lord of glory. How did He get there? Well, He got there because of the Christmas story. Because he was willing to come. And because of that, God has given him a name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess. And you know, there's a wonderful promise in the book of Isaiah that says that he's going to be called Wonderful Counselor, the Prince of Peace, the Almighty God. He's given a name that's higher. As you look at your own life, I want you to get caught up as we worship together. The worship team is going to sing a song called Higher. Let yourself get carried away in its lyrics.
We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.